out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the bass player, songwriter, musician, and also author. It's the one and only Charlie Beddoes who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. has been in various bands, quite a lot in fact, from the 80s right through to the current uh, time, including Rub Ultra, Trash, Trash Palace, Nasty Little Lonely and lots, lots more. But, he says, the uh, most exciting thing that's happened recently is that she's written and published a book titled Overdriven. The true story of a girl with a dirty bass sound and more ambition than sense. This is available from all good bookshops and also online, but we'll be talking about that. And also I'll put the link to how you can buy it in the notes. But anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Charlie, it's over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I've put it in the book. It was sort of weird sporadic things so only certain things popped out at me and the first one was probably Donny Osmond but that was a that was a kind of a love interest thing not the music um and then it was the sweet and T-Rex um I like I love T-Rex I still love it to this day and um and then just sort of bizarre things like I got really obsessed with Rapper's Delight and Living on the Frontline by Eddie Grant and the the crunch by the raw band yes yeah. that's i know i know i noticed you put eddie grant in there which made me remember that song and also you reference a great hymn that we used to love which i don't think many people know but lord of the dance which is still uh, one of those ones that um i hum today to myself in great enthusiasm but yeah, not I many I mention that don't i in my book about playing it on the recorder with tea towels on my head at, at uh, sunday school to give it that authentic look because the book you know because obviously you know that's um for many reasons that's why we're having this conversation but it's quite an amazing sort of insight to your the childhood years when you were coming to do the book um it was it's quite it's quite harsh isn't it really it's one of those stories which isn't comfortable reading at all so when when did you decide that you wanted to capture your life on on print um I think I'd always sort of thought that I wanted to do it. And then I actually started it on New Year's Day 2017 um, because I was fed up about women not getting on rock gigs in Bristol. And uh, I started it and then I was like, oh, so now I'm going to write a book. So where am I going to start? And then I decided to start right at the beginning because I felt that my childhood um, was something that isn't really talked about much. Um, like, um, you know, for the listeners, like being brought up by a severely mentally ill hoarder. Um, it's not something that's really discussed, like, you know, other types of sort of um, child neglect and things are discussed, but just that that isn't something that I've ever seen anyone really talk about. And I thought it would be good to sort of give a perspective on how that feels as a child. Yes. Um, I think it feels like um, it's, it means that unlike most children, you can't live in the present. You know that the only way you're going to get away from this is to get away. So you're just basically waiting your whole childhood to grow up. So you're living in your fantasies and in the future. And I think that sort of has the effect of 
like pulling back a catapult really far so that when you do escape you're kind of propelled quite far and I think that's kind of what propelled me into going to a career in the music industry kind of thing. Yes, well, like God, it's it's quite something because it's quite uh, kind of a lot of kind of quite graphic kind of um, descriptions in the book of the childhood and your relationship with your parents and them breaking up and then the stepmother and then obviously your mother and then also experiencing all the delights of sort of your body changing and having you know periods and everything. It's just all in there, isn't it? And and that kind of kind of I, that sense of despair and kind of loneliness and confusion is just. It's just, yeah, it, it's quite, it's quite a book. So for anybody wanting to read it, it's 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 something else. But it's also very good because I did sort of just mention when I read, you know, the James Brown, the author, you know, of Loaded, his childhood and his mother who had severe mental problems, and I mean, it was really heartbreaking as well. You know, it was just like, oh my god, you know, the story of him now remembering his mum looking through the school gate at him and his brother or old sister and and realizing that she was just somebody who you know wasn't coping in life and um and eventually kills herself which is horrendous so yes yeah, so what happened to my mother really is a kind of I don't want to do a spoiler but it was kind of a a protracted suicide it was sort of like the amount of self-neglect you know was only going to end one way one way or another you know, so yeah, that was tough to watch, like throughout my whole life, basically. But um, yeah, it's just I felt that like there's a lot of things that hadn't been given voice to by anybody else, and that's why I wanted to do what I did. But there are some happy bits, aren't there? Obviously. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't. I yes, there are. You know, but I can't quite. I mean, mostly because every band I've ever interviewed has has you know the the life of a band. I often because I'm just being a fan and just enjoyed the music and obviously project projected into the. My God, it must have been brilliant in the band. But now I realise that you know I've never had children, but if I did, I would forbid them to play musical instruments <laughs> or be in a band because I think that's just going to make it really confusing and dysfunctional. But um. But that's just live, isn't it? It is very tricky. So when you got to that, because because you when do you leave school? Is it sort of 81, 82? Is that when you hit 16? Yeah, I, I left. I started my A-levels, but then I dropped out um, because I realised I wouldn't be able to go to university because my dad wouldn't pay. And, um, yeah, although you could get a grant in those days because my parents had joint custody and he was absent but wealthy, but I never saw any of it. He wouldn't pay and that he would have had to. Um, so I realised that I wouldn't be able to go to uni, so I would have to just leave home. So, yeah, I just like left home on my 17th birthday. Yes. My God, that's so drastic, isn't it? I mean, did you, when did you sort of decide music was going to be your salvation? Did you, was there a moment where, you know, you thought, I'm going to, do it I'm going to try and learn to play an instrument in a enthusiastic naive way which is a great combination when you're young because you know when you get older you have so much self-doubt but then it's it's kind of essential for every pop band isn't it really that that combination as long as as well as other things as well well um I kind of always sort of had a a sort of an inkling that it was something that I wanted to do um, just because it sounded so like glamorous and exciting. So um, there was a bunch of guys I met when I was like 16 who were older than me and got me into music. And they supposedly had a band. I never saw them rehearse or play. They just talked about it a lot. So and they like let me say that I was in it. 
even though we never did anything. Um, but it wasn't really serious until um, I, 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 it's in the book that I wanted to be a film director and I worked at a video company and got groomed by my boss. And uh, that kind of, I just kind of was in shock and it, he wasn't successful, I should point out. But um, And then I took rather a lot, large amount of LSD and had an epiphany and decided that I was going to be a pop star instead of a film director because hopefully the music industry was less sexist. So, uh, but it is actually because the film industry is terrible. You know, they, those were the, the Jimmy Savile, Harvey Weinstein type days, you know. So actually the music business was less sexist when I got into it. Yes, but you did meet a famous photographer, didn't you, Terence? Donovan at this stage in your sort of early years so what was that kind of um, how did you manage to sort of meet Terence? Um, well he was um, uh, something to he was at the video company that I was working at the one where, where my horrible boss was um, and actually his son Dan Donovan who was later in Big Audio Dynamite he was directing um, something that I was helping with in the edit suite. And yeah, Terence Donovan was there and he kind of saw the dynamic and he slipped me a 50 pound note and said, you poor cow, you know, because he could see the dynamic because my boss was like, oh, this is Charlie. You'll never get in her knickers. And to all these like important directors and things. And yeah, it was it was it was quite shocking behavior. Like if only I'd have known there was such a, a thing as uh, sexual harassment and, you know, that type of thing, I would have taken him to the cleaners. But I didn't know at the time. I was very naive. Yes. I mean, God, back in the early 80s, that's... Yeah. I know we look at the good old days, but frankly, Mr. Shankly, it's it's a it's a shocker, isn't it? Really. But then, I mean, sort of what, what's kind of interesting at that period is like, you know, nineteen seventy nine. You know, Margaret Thatcher gets into power, and then it's just constant conservative government. And then nineteen eighty, we have you know the Falkland War. Then we have the miners' crisis. Then we have this Greenham Common, and there's there's a huge you know huge unemployment, especially those left of centre, and um, you know so. It, so I think why there's so many bans from that period, especially, is that people were able to sign on really easily. And there was a job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes and all those to sort of massage the sort of the figures to make it look like there weren't quite so many people unemployed. But it did give people that option of being able to sort of be kind of self-employed for a year, wasn't it, really? And then you could just kind of get your house and benefit paid council tax and then about £40. So in those days, it was fab. I was on the dole for years and there were no jobs. You know, I remember on, um, I lived in Hackney in a squat at the time. And I remember on Hackney Town Hall, they would have the dole figures displayed on the town hall every week. And it was really high, you know, in that borough. It was, I know nationally it might have been one in 10, but I think in Hackney it was like one, um, probably like one in five or something. And uh, yeah, we just went and signed on and they went, so what are you doing to look for work? And and you'd go, oh, I'm in a band. And they go, oh, okay, we'll see how that goes then. Not like now, you know, because there were no jobs to apply for. And I used to occasionally buy the Evening Standard and try and apply for an office junior job, but I never even got a reply because the estate I lived on was so dodgy. It was kind of notorious. Um, yeah, so, yeah, there was kind of nothing else to do. And you're right, you know, so many bands, we learnt our craft there was nothing else to do. I didn't have any money. I had a bass guitar and a lot of cassettes. And um, I just thought, well, if I'm ever going to get out of this situation, 
I just need to learn to play the bass really well and practice and practice. And yeah, so that's what I did basically. And yes. the type of bands that were signed around then, like you could be really bizarre and still get a record deal. You know, it wasn't any, you didn't have to be commercial or write hits. I, I remember, um, I think it was Psychic TV signed to CBS for a million pounds with an album of um, tattooing your arm, burying something in a coffin and setting light to it and all sorts of weird stuff going on, you know. And that it was because it was sort of the post-punk era and record companies didn't know what the hell was going on. So they just kind of threw money at anything at that point, really. They did. They certainly, they did. I mean, there's, God, we're so grateful for them, but um, there was some very strange kind of, um, yes, record labels and record owners and stuff like that, which is all now being archived, which is great stuff. So, so you know, you mentioned the, um, LSD, but there was also Black Magic as well that appears in, in these, this period. Alistair Crowley, was that, um, and was it Tarot as well that you started to get a, a fascination for? What came first? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I think I was just sort of obsessed with trying to find maps for my world because I felt like I hadn't really been brought up by anyone who had a grip on consensus reality. So I was sort of obsessed with trying to make sense of everything. And I found my sense in astrology, tarot cards, and um, Alistair Crowley's Diary of a Drug Fiend. And I was going to find my true will. And I, I, I believed in um, doing um, spells, you know, like sex magic and stuff and trying to make things happen, force the hand of chance, as, as people would say. And, you know, it seemed to work. So what can I say? I, I'd just like to point out that I'm no longer, um, I no longer believe in astrology. I believe in, um, I believe in the tarot astrology and the I Ching as, um I think what they are is they're the language of the um, unconscious, you know, like Jung's um, mass unconscious. And so they kind of like, if you do a tarot spread, it plays out an archetypical drama that you can kind of hang anything on. Mm -hmm. I think astrology, I don't believe that the planets are affecting things. But what I do believe is that it because humans have believed in astrology for so long that it's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy you know even if you deny it and go oh no I'm nothing like a Cancerian or a Taurus or whatever because it's so in our culture it does have some kind of effect but I don't think it's the actual planets affecting things but back then I completely believed all of it like totally hook line and sinker yes you got to really haven't you well, I was I was slightly in a more of a fluffy world of kind of the hippiedom of ley lines and you know yeah. power animals and alternative healing as well, which was a big thing. Which again, you know, is great unless you're ill, and then it was really dangerous because it could kill you because someone has no idea what they're doing, and they're encouraging you not to go to a conventional doctor who knows what they're doing. And um, yes, it's hard not to be slightly angry actually years later at some of those kind of people who 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 had amazing self-belief and um completely no skill at all but um hey ho we look back and wonder how we survived don't we yes 
<laughs> so with yeah because your your story i mean there's lots of bands there's lots of kind of odd characters which again it's kind of interesting because in a way the one thing that i've learned as i got older um and it took a long time is is kind of being a better judgment of, of people as well because frankly one does look back at one's younger self and think my goodness I was so naive <laughs> the warning signs were all there and still I stepped into it um yeah so coming back right in the book then did you go through it chronologically because I know that's that's um sort of how it's come out so did you literally go back to the, the first year and then sort of add each bit for for it yeah um, so after I'd started that initial bit on New Year's Day 2017, I went back to the beginning and I wrote it from the beginning in sequence. I didn't dot around in, in my writing. I just wrote the whole thing and then went back and tried to sort of fix it and improve it and edit it. And um, so, yeah, I did it that way. And I was lucky that um, I didn't have diaries, but I did have notebooks that I'd scroll various things in. And I also had calendars from about, um, from 1990, I had calendars that had all the major events in. So I was able to check against that. And then I checked back um, because I could remember kind of what records were in the charts at the times when certain things happened. So I just did research to make sure that I'd put the right event in the right year. I had I still know a couple of people that I've known, you know, most of my life. And I kind of checked some events with them as well. And they had diaries. And Yes. So, uh, but you did really well with the 80s because there's a lot that happens in your 80s, isn't there? So that's you know there's a lot of bands there's a lot of people there's a lot of gigs you go to and and the amount of and it's interesting how many people you met during that time who were quite major players in a small scene but you know I mean to me they were major players in a massive scene but you realize not not many people really knew world domination party really didn't they? but you know and all those kind of you know and going to see Hawkwind and and various other German sort of bands as well but again you, you know you do manage to sort of get to sort of meet quite sort of important important people he says yeah. well what can I say the spells worked <laughs> because you know there was a point when I was about 18 where I was sat in a squat on the dole with nothing and nobody and I only knew about two people and somehow all this stuff began to happen and I began to meet musicians and went to some amazing gigs and connected with some amazing people and yeah I, I don't really know how it happened it happened out of nothing so yeah maybe the black magic worked <laughs> it was it was definitely yeah actually I think I said world domination party enterprises wasn't it yes, Sorry. God, someone would be going oh you've made a mistake yeah. Thank you very much. So, what was the what was the first band that you were which you were in? Was this Kicked In Come? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't even ask me why it's called that. I have no idea. Um, um. Other than the fact that um, the the guy who was the guitarist, who was my boyfriend at the time, he was very obsessed with kind of um magic with a K and he's a bit of an expert now on Austin Osman Spare and uh, yeah so he had some very strange ideas um, but yeah we we decided we'd be a band and I think we were probably most inspired by things like Einstürz and Neubauten and kind of Throbbing Gristle things like that where um, yeah as I put in the book that um, writing a song 
is evil because it's constraining the muse and preventing the muse from coming through in a pure and adulterated form. So everything we did was completely improvised um, and I couldn't even really play. I was just making noises and then fiddling with a delay pedal um, with my bass. So, yeah. Very that was very that's very good isn't it I love that that's so pure and magical it's and quite amazing um I should say like my first gig when I did my first gig I couldn't play the bass and we had no idea what we were going to play when we got on the stage and that's great training like you know that's absolutely baptism of fire so after that you can do anything I think yes it sounded a little bit like when Susan Vanchies played or Susie with I think Sid on guitar, Marco Peroni on guitar, no drums. Marco was on guitar. Who else? But I think they they just did a few songs, the the, the national anthem, and that was it, really, wasn't it? So I think you you got to start somewhere, haven't you? So yeah. um, you know, that's always good. The other thing, you know, there's lots of things I love about the book. Um, yes, there's the cultural and political things. You you mentioned mentioned Chernobyl in there as well, which was something that freaked us all out as well. So. Coming back to to writing and processing it all, did it take you quite a long time to sort of pull it all together and, and sort of make sure that you it has a, a, a sort of continuity throughout it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say because, as I said, I started in 2017 and I only published it at the end of 2022. So that's five years. But actually, within that time, I had like a year off here and there. If I'd have sat down and done it solidly, I could have done it in probably about 18 months. That was about 18 months of work. So, um, you know, w when I was in it, I, I did a lot and was quick. Um, and I'd say that probably the the writing of it was probably the quickest part. The, the hard part was editing it and going back and because um, as, as someone said when they first read it, that it was like bathing in people's names. And it was also about 20,000 words longer than it ended up being. And that was the hard thing to decide what to keep and what to discard. And But, yeah, the continuity of it, that kind of came because I do have a very good memory. Yes. And how were you dealing with kind of processing it all? You know, because obviously thinking about it when you're walking down the street or you can't get to sleep at three in the morning, but then writing it and then having it so committed to a page, how were you coping with that part of the process? Um, it was interesting because I think that the early part of my life, which was probably the most traumatic to the reader, um, because it was so long ago, I've kind of, I have processed that and I had already sort of reduced it to anecdotes for telling people, you know, so in a way I'd already written the early years um, in my mind and I just needed to commit them to paper. Um, it got harder and harder as it got more recent because especially as I was finishing the book shortly after I'd split up with my partner of 17 years and so the last 17 years were hard to write because I wanted to continue um, you know like it's quite humorous throughout in places as they're sort of tragically funny it's been described as and <laughs> I wanted to continue for it to be tragically funny and it was very very hard to do that when I just um you know come out of a relationship and quite traumatically in lockdown and stuff so yeah it was just the, the more recent stuff that was really hard to write the rest of it I've already it was already anecdotes in my mind you know? right 
But did you feel when you looked at that, your 16, 18 year old, you know, person, did you feel like you wanted to give them a hug? Did you feel a bit like, how did that, how did that person survive? Um, I, I don't know. I never really thought of it like that. But lots of people who have read it have. I've got <laughs> friends who are like, I've just read it. I want to give you a hug. One person said, I want to give you three hugs. One for your terrible childhood. One for your appalling luck with men. And one for all the rubbish you went through in the rock and roll world. <laughs> so, yes, it's quite... Because your perseverance in the music world is is quite something. Because there's the 80s period... And what I've kind of, you know, found from doing doing this show in a slightly simplistic way, but that most bands have that five-year narrative, you know, they have that 12-month kind of honeymoon time, you know, they make a sound, they get a single, they get it on John Peel, he gives them a play, then as John Peel session, that first album, things are going quite well. And there were kind of quite a few record labels at that time, and the sort of, the tour around the country and the little transit bands going terribly well. And then the second, third album, when... The dynamics of the band aren't great and everyone's realised there was just no money. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're still living in poverty after five years. And then it's like the whole thing finishes. Whereas you sort of bounce from, from one sort of kind of family-ish to another family, which is slightly dysfunctional at times. You yeah. know, some of the some of the members, I'm being kind, they're quite, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of drugs and drink and you know, magic and ideas, which we, you know, we embrace when we're young, don't we? But you know, you your perseverance and stamina is astonishing. Well, as uh, you know, it's all in the title, overdriven. You know, I, I I have always felt compelled. I've always felt like I'm an extremely restless person. I have to be doing something. I have to be pursuing something. Um, I, and, you know, I guess that comes from my childhood, like the sort of determination that I was going to escape. Um, so, yeah, I think it comes from there. But, yeah, I, I never kind of rest. Even now, you know, that's why I've written the book and I'm now writing another book because I kind of can't stop, you know, and it's sort of, um, unfortunately, heavy rock bands don't tend to want a woman in their 50s in them and also have cartilage damage so i can't mosh very well anymore <laughs> no no one no one can do that much moshing anyway and uh, we just have enough trouble trying to get up from the sofa without making some weird grunty noise <laughs> or sitting down yeah i mean that's because because you're so is the main or the, the band that really seems to sort of catapult you to that this could be it is, is rub ultra is that yeah. the first kind of band that is like this is this, this is the serious one this is the it wasn't the brit pop well it is that brit pop period but it was the it was, was brit it? rock so but so basically um well i had a conversation with this um uh, about this with everett true who wrote the forward for me yes and, um you know brit pop is what we associate the 90s with the early 90s and mid 90s but actually, there was also a Brit rock scene that you could compare to the grunge scene. But because the music press elected to bring all the grunge bands over from America and to kind of create this idea of Britpop, they kind of ignored a load of a whole host of amazing bands. I mean, some of them got reported on individually, like Skunk and Nancy and Feeder, although mainly that was a little bit later. But there was a massive Brit rock scene. You know, there were bands like Therapy and Silverfish and Skyscraper and Head Cleaner and The God Machine 
and then my band Rob Ultra and Feeder and Skunk and Nancy and we were a scene we were a real scene we all hung around Camden we all knew each other we all went to each other's gigs but it didn't get reported and Britpop really was a journalistic construct and even grunge you know Everett True was sent to Seattle to find out about this tiny little scene called grunge and then imported it and made it global and I remember we were all quite pissed off at the time because we we're like well why isn't he reporting on the bands in his own backyard you know because you could compare bands like ourselves and Feeder and Skunk and Nancy and Silverfish and Therapy to Soundgarden and the Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam and there's a comparison to be made there and Rage Against the Machine was our comparison I'd say yes just wasn't reported in the same way yeah because it was kind of it was it was kind of for me the 80s this is really simplistic I mean there was all the there was the mainstream press um the mainstream charts that had that kind of Trevor Horn production and then there was like the, there was a goth scene there was a narco-punk scene new paisley scene but then from 83 to 87 was the kind of the indie scene of the smiths and there was like for the independent charts that was quite dominant and you had all those jingly jangly bands and 87 came the smiths broke up and then ecstasy came along and then in the uk there was this kind of funny little period wasn't there that kind of north london oh yes there was obviously the dance scene from manchester um so everyone took ecstasy and was kind of getting slightly ravey but then you know there was though yeah the, the london north North London scene and you mentioned Silverfish who I adored and then it was the Faith Healers and Carter and then obviously My Bloody Valentine came along and so that was like oh wow this is kind of really happening but at the same time there was that Seattle grunge scene that you know, that was coming through so it was it was funny then you had bands like Sensor and then the Levelers and Wonder Stuff and there was that kind of festy everyone well, wants to have a didgeridoo in the band it was all very confusing well, wasn't it? We had to Sensor because we had male and female vocals and we toured with the levelers and so yeah with that was kind of part of the kind of environment that we were in but yeah I just think Britpop was a, a social construct invented by journalists and actually the British scene was a lot richer and more diverse um, than it was kind of given credit for and yeah sadly we only remember the headlines now don't we we don't remember the, the depth and complexity but it's interesting what you said there about the um, ecstasy I, I felt a massive divide in my peer group around the very late 80s, like 88, 89, um, where there were, because there, at the time we were all kind of like post-punks, like guitar bands, and then it almost split in two. And half my friends went off into the world of rave and ecstasy, and half my friends stayed true to the spirit of the guitar and the spirit of rock. And we didn't take the ecstasy. We, you know, we went to the odd warehouse party, but that wasn't our thing. We wanted to be bands um, in the in that sense of the word, you know. Yes, but it was it was kind of culturally quite interesting because the levelers who probably wouldn't have got arrested in the 80s had just been one of those, you know, festy bands that might have played at Stonehenge, but, you know, would all be in the per poor person's kind of Hawkwind, really. And, you know, were quite ridiculous in a lot of ways. But then they they just found this audience and suddenly they're headlining Glastonbury. Actually, uh, so does Carter as well, don't they? They they suddenly headline Glastonbury as well. That's your perception, though. But, um, you know, I have to know a bit about the Levellers' background. And they were very canny. They they had finance from jobs that they'd had. 
they used to um, ship their fans around in a bus. And, you know, as I say in the book, like all you had to do back then to get a record deal was get bums on seats. And it, the perception was that the levelers had a lot of fans. So the industry saw this and then that's why they kind of got all the help that they got. Um, so it was possible to manipulate the music industry um, back in those days by doing certain things and, you know, shipping your fans around. And I think that remained true right up until probably the last people who did that successfully was the Arctic Monkeys with their right. manipulation of MySpace. But actually, everyone's like, oh, they got big on MySpace accidentally. No, they didn't. They had some clever people who knew what they were doing with MySpace. So quite often our perception is that a band like just happened, but actually there was some thought and some work went into that. Yes, it's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. Funny and Machiavellian types. I know. With dreadlocks and didgeridoo, it was very difficult. But um, <laughs> Ultra, yeah, so Rub Ultra. So what's this, you know, so how did this particular band come together? Because this was kind of your, the album came out, it was 95, wasn't it, on sort of high-rise recordings. Yeah. So you sort of, you've got major players, you've got major interests. This is the John Major years as well, isn't it, which we get very excited about and reminisce with great enthusiasm. Yeah, I mean, I I would I, I kind of take the credit for engineering Rub Ultra. I was the kind of Malcolm McLaren behind the scenes because I knew what I wanted to do. And I'd found this drummer from my previous band and me and him played really well together as a strong rhythm section. And I had this vision of we were obsessed with Led Zeppelin and we were like, right, how are we going to make rock fashionable in the UK? Um, because it wasn't at all. Everyone at the time in the late 80s, early 90s was obsessed with the Beatles. And um, so it was it was a strategy. We were like, right, we're going to find a singer who isn't rock, who will sing over our rocky riffs. And that way we'll make rock cool again. And we did, you know, so we found a singer whose kind of influences were more things like kind of he was into rare groove um, and old school funk and the um, things like the Spin Doctors, stuff like that. And so we thought, right, if we put his vocal with our music, we're going to come out somewhere in the ballpark of Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Faith No More, which was the new rock that was coming from America. So it was a strategy. We intentionally kind of created that um, to be fashionable. And then, and then it was, we had a major record company bidding war and it was quite delightful really to think, you know, a year ago, because a year before that I'd been in a heavy rock band and a friend had managed us and had been laughed out of the building by several record companies going, <laughs> rock's not fashionable in the UK. You're never going to get anywhere with that. And then, so to achieve this thing, to make it that we were playing the same riffs, but because we'd sort of disguised it with a different front person and different kind of marketing and stuff like that, we were, yeah, there was a massive record company bidding war. Yes. And this is kind of on Virgin Records, isn't it, actually? This is a part of Virgin. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the bands on there was Smash. You were just... Oh, yeah, we toured with them. Oh, but... I love that 12-inch single. Smash and these animal men, and and actually that caused a massive argument in in Rub Ultra because the singer who used to drink rather too much, um, we went on tour with Smash, and then he was like, "Let's be new wave of new wave," and I'm like, mm, 
that would be all right, but you've got a drummer who sounds like John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, and you've got a bass player, i.e. me, who writes big Sabbathy riffs. If you want to be in an indie punk band, you're in the wrong band. <laughs> we already signed. We got signed for being kind of rage meets smashing pumpkins. We weren't supposed to be new wave of new wave, you know. So yeah, so that caused a massive argument in the band. But yeah, Smash, you know, he that, that the guy is kind of a genuine, you know, he's a genuine article. He is. Yes, he is. Definitely one. But um, yes, during that kind of the mid 90s, though, huge amount of because because you mentioned drug dealing boyfriends and, and members of the band. How were you coping with that period of the 90s? Because that's obviously because the 80s, looking back on it, I mean, it, it seems quite light and fluffy, doesn't it? Yeah. The 90s seems quite dark and horrendous. You know, oh, it's horrific because all my dreams were coming true, except for they were nightmares. You know, so it's like, you know, giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Yeah, you can have this amazing time, but it's going to be hell. And it, it was like that. So, yeah, my mental health suffered massively. And I think um, when uh, when I left Rub Ultra, um, yeah, that was probably the worst mental state I've ever been in in my life. And it took me, you know, a couple of years to recover, a couple of years and getting another band together that got a publishing deal to kind of get my pride back and get my mojo back and feel like I had a place in the world again yeah it was devastating it was worse than any breakup with a boyfriend ever because you know it was my baby I'd like made it from nothing and it had, you know had the potential to go all the way sadly it didn't but yeah it was yes a traumatic difficult time <laughs> but you managed to sort of pick yourself up from from that for for another one because I'm I'm not sure where it comes chronologically but then when do you meet Fuzz from Silverfish? Is that a lot later or is no, that straight after Rub Ultra? Right. So I tried to do a band with Fuzz, um, but it, it didn't work out. Just I mean, I'm still good friends with Fuzz to this day. He's a lovely chap. I get on really well with him. But yeah, it didn't work out because we'd had such different experiences because Rub Ultra had been, you know, um a contrived effort like manipulating things pulling elements it took a long time to make something that would have the, a successful recipe whereas silverfish i think it just kind of happened that it was one of those rare things where they just got together and the magic was there so um me and fuzz had different ideas about how you should approach approach it he was just like get some people in a room it'll happen and i was like no that person hasn't got it that person hasn't got it so it yeah it just didn't kind of work out our different methodologies yes because I, I did an interview with old barry adamson and he was talking about learning the bass because i think it was the only thing left or he thought this is going to be the easiest instrument and he he had a bass which probably only had one string so he went to the rehearsal and got the gig or something i don't know it all sounded quite amazing but i think when you look back at some of those things that happen you think it's all going to be like that for the rest of your life and you go oh, no it's not actually yeah. <laughs> you won't just get you won't get the record deal and the and the sort of amazing band that did that you have one chance kind of thing I mean Barry's gone on to do well but he obviously has become this amazing bass player I mean your development as well did you practice and really grow to love the bass guitar oh yeah yeah because I originally played the cello um and so when I met these guys who said they had a band I was like oh I'll play bass because I thought what's well, the same it's got four strings it's just 
that way, you know, horizontal instead of vertical. Um, and I was quite musical. So I, I took to it quite easily. But I think it's where I got my style from as well, because I play with a pick. And I think I use a pick the way I would use a bow on a cello. So I kind of have my own style in that way. And funny you mentioned Barry Adamson, because he was the first bass player I learned to play to because I sort of was going through some records trying to find something that I could learn bass lines on. And it was magazine where that was the first thing I came across where I could properly hear the bass. Yes. So I learned to play bass by copying Barry. In yes. Did Lemmy play with a pick? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think I've got the impression he did. He played it more like a rhythm guitar, though, didn't he? Yeah, kind of me too, a little bit. Like, I like to make the bass sing. Um, someone once said to me, bass should be felt but not heard. And I don't agree, you know, like, like sort of subby. And I don't agree. I like the bass to go, da, 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 you know, kind of singing out kind of thing. So, yeah. Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Like so so, so as, we, as we go from John Major to New Labour, and the 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 uh, yes the next period your next band is no santa so how does how did you manage to get this combo together so quickly um i just advertised in melody maker that was the way you did it then i think everyone from the who to goodness knows has, has formed out of ads in melody maker so and i got a drummer who was from cornwall and a singer who was from uh, dublin and then we kind of met up in London and, yeah, just formed a new band. Things were looking really bright for a while. Um, we got a pu major publishing deal, but we were just too late with the record deal because things had started to get more difficult to get a deal because of the internet. It was just rearing its ugly head and casting uncertainty on the music business. And it just meant that major record companies had started to become more cautious. So instead of signing five of everything to, you know, maximize their, their market share, they'd started only signing one of everything. And we were kind of tech rock. We were like Nirvana with the Chemical Brothers mixed in. And um, yeah, and it, we were too late. Most, most of them already had a tech rock band, so. Yeah, we kind of missed the boat, so that didn't really work out. Yes, it was close though, wasn't it? Was that on Zomba Records? No, how yeah. did you know that? Because we actually got offered a deal by Zomba, but we didn't sign it. We signed with BMG Publishing. Right. Because I, I just I'm <laughs> So are you still doing tarot at this at this stage? Was your tarot your 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 I can't remember. I did say something to yeah. somebody who took all this and I, I yeah. mentioned the B word about something magic. And he went, it's not the B word magic. But I'm sorry. Oh, no, I um, my I had jobs in between bands to support myself so I could afford gear and rehearsals and things like that. And that my jobs were tarot and palm reading at corporate parties and doing specialist paint effects like fake marble which I did for a company where we did like Harrods and the Ritz and Selfridges and things like that so I had these two bizarre side jobs that I did like you know nothing normal why couldn't I just like you know work in a shop or something no they have to be like really bizarre kind of part-time jobs as well so yeah that's how I supported myself. Yes so what's the new the millennium the great millennium the millennium bug and we thought things were all going to happen what was that that sort of transition like for you were you still in the band at this stage or had that sort of evaporated as well um yeah I was by this time I was sessioning so um no Santa split up 
because we couldn't get the record deal and frankly the guys in the band were a bit useless so um and I got offered session work which I'd never it was never something I thought I'd do because I wanted to write but I got offered first of all the first one I got offered was Emiliana Torini who's um an Icelandic Icelandic artist and it was in a band with Siggy from the Sugar Cubes on drums so Björk's old drummer and Dave from Faithless on guitar so it was a really prestigious session to get and I ended up playing in that band for three years I think 99 to 2002 or something and we toured Europe like two or three times we supported Sting we supported Gabrielle we supported Moby you know all these big names and stuff and she was quite big um in Icelandic, she's a superstar. We headlined the uh, Icelandic um, National Opera House, but in Europe, we played kind of fairly big gigs. Yes, all over. So yeah, that was an amazing time. Like I got to actually do it for real. It wasn't my own band, but still, it was still amazing. I bet the dressing rooms were much nicer as well. Yes, and the riders and the being taken out for dinner by the record companies in every country we went to and stuff. Yeah, it was amazing. Yes, because then in the book, you this is like 2002. I think this is the first time that there's there's the first kind of rock and roll casualty, isn't there, with Jonathan Feeder? Yeah, I think that's, that's the first the first that you realise is going to be the first of many. So that was that kind of a bit of a reality moment for you, sort of suddenly finding people your own age, sort of having sort of such mental problems and issues. Yeah, that was terrible because. You know, I knew how much John had wanted it um, from back in the days when, you know, us and Skunk and Nancy and Fida, we all used to share a rehearsal room and Fida were always, they were kind of behind us and Rob Ultra and, uh, Rob Ultra and Skunk and Nancy in the sort of record company stakes and playing catch up and they wanted it so bad and I know how much John wanted it. And then they just had a massive hit with Buck Rogers a few months before and then so, yeah, for him to take his own life like that, it was really, really terrible. I remember the day it happened, I think I was in a car and the radio was on and the DJ said something about it and then played Where's Your Head At? And that always sticks with me every time I hear that record. I remember that moment when I would found out about John. Yeah, God, that is horrendous, actually, isn't it? One of those moments, it all sort of sobers you up a bit, don't you? So then, <clears throat> 2003, because you mentioned in the book, you said you asked James, son of Jethro Tull, is that Ian Anderson? Yeah. Right, to play to play drums for you. Yeah. So was this your next musical kind of adventure? Yeah, so at that time I started sessioning for some other stuff who, where I've had to change the names in the book. Um, so I don't know whether it's okay to say it on... Oh, God, yes. Well, if it's, you know. <laughs> well, um, I don't think they'll sue me, but um, I've called it in the book. I've said he's called um, Colin from Panacea. And if you read between the lines of a similar meaning um, and a similar syllabled name, um, I played in a band with him that was a French producer's outfit um, where he had guest vocalists, um, including... Um, who I called Colin, Ali Shaw from Cranes, John Cale from the Velvet Underground. And I did some massive gigs with them. But at the same time, I started fronting my own band. Um, and um, yeah, James, who was the son of Ian Anderson, was my first drummer in that band. 
Right. My goodness. So what, you know, when you were sort of forming a band and it's it's obviously a new decade and, and all that, I mean, what musical direction were you thinking you wanted to go in next, considering you'd been through so many decades and different styles? I was trying to tie it all together, really, but not really having much success. I think this is one of the problems is that I was such a kind of a crossover kid, you know, because on the one hand, I've got Robin Gristle as an influence and then on the other hand I've got Rage Against the Machine as an influence and you know so where do you go with it so I made an album around that time with that very first band that I did I called it Charlie Says and I made an album and it sounded like sort of a journey through the late 90s genres there were tracks on it that sounded like the hives and then there were tracks on it that sounded like white zombie and then, you know, so that kind of range. <laughs> so stuff from kind of like, you know, high energy sort of punky stuff to sort of almost more metal kind of stuff. But it didn't really have a lot of cohesion, but it was my first attempt as a front person. So I was kind of finding my voice and I didn't really know what genres suited me to sing. So I was kind of experimenting really. Um, yeah, so it didn't really kind of identify itself as anything I think it was quite good live and the songs individually are good but there isn't much cohesion on, on that album god the, the the complexity of making a record is quite extraordinary isn't it really it's just getting the sound and quality but during that time you then have probably your first big health scare don't you because in the book you write about suddenly losing weight and then sort of having to go to the hospital is it for a um I lost a- about stone because I had some kind of growth in my intestines and it meant that I couldn't keep food down and um, yeah it was kind of it was ironic because for the first time in my life I was as thin as I wanted to be because I've always been quite a sturdy girl and I was really thin and like loads of people were hitting on me and saying how fit I was and, and in reality I was like you know I couldn't keep food down I felt really faint all the time and stuff like that so yeah it was kind of a bit of irony yes and um did you manage to get all that completely sorted out and manage to move on again in life god it is so tricky actually so charlie says it's kind of been and gone then what's the next kind of musical moment um so i carried on sessioning and i ended up doing stuff for roland boland son of mark boland and i did a bit of a thing for did um just on that point roland boland did he ever sort of work out where all Mark's money was going? Or is that one of the great mysteries in music? Oh, he was involved, I think, or his family were involved in a court case. And I think um, maybe a year or two after I stopped working with him, he did get awarded a substantial amount of the back money that was owed to his family. So I think that did get sorted out. Yes, it was always one of those mysteries, wasn't it? As you probably know from the record industry of... Where yeah. did all the money go? And no, Roland Bowen never got any, did he? Yeah, he got it in the end, I think, a couple of years after I worked with him. Yes. But yes. Because, oh, sorry, I was going to say, because then you, you mentioned Fierce Panda and dear old Simon Williams. You sort of try and um, yeah, get yeah. him to sign you. Because I read, I sort of um, read his book and, and did an interview with him. And I don't know if you read it, but it's horrendously tragic. You know, he sort of... he it's kind of littered throughout about him going off to kill himself. And it's like having this attempt. Oh, Jesus. 
So no, I um, I I just approached him to see if he could help, and I, I didn't really ask him to sign us. I just sort of saw whether he could do anything, and he gave Charlie says about um a gig at the Dublin Castle supporting the Arctic Monkeys the night they got signed. Um, so yeah, that was pretty cool. I didn't know who they were. I was like, who is this band? They're quite good, and we supported them that night. So that was two thousand and five by then. Yes. But then the most tragic thing happens in your book, isn't it? This is when you get woken up in the middle of the night with news about your mother. So what? So had you been in touch with your your parents that much? Because it sounded like your your dad you hadn't so much, and his new wife. Uh, I mean, I'm now completely estranged from my father because of various things. But yeah, he was never really present in my life. He kind of pretty much abandoned me, and my mum. I was in touch with her, but she was very difficult to deal with. She, you couldn't have a normal conversation. Um, if you rang her up, you'd be on the phone for two hours and you couldn't get rid of her without being rude. Um, and I tried many times during my life to go and sort out all the rubbish that she lived in. And when I did, she took it as an invasion and an intrusion and she would not speak to me for a year afterwards each time. So I was in touch with her, but kind of at arm's length. Um, so yeah, so I hadn't, I sort of saw her every now and then, and I'd had a not very good conversation with her. And then I had a knock at my door at one o'clock in the morning and it was the police and her house had burnt down basically. And she was inside it. So, yes, yeah. God, that's just the most horrendous graphic thought ever, isn't it? Really. So, um, yes, your poor mother passed away. So, did she lose? Did all the house burn down, or just the bathroom? Um, all of it was damaged. I mean, the the, the structure was still there, which is lucky because it was a a, a centre terrace. So, you know, it, it's good that the firemen put it out before it could damage next door on either side. Um, but the entire interior was completely devastated and um it had to be sold and stripped back to the brickwork and re reconstructed including the stairs and the walls and everything you know yes but then also you mentioned that the mortgage or no was it the insurance hadn't been up to date yeah so so her mortgage and her insurance had been in together as a package and the company had separated them just a couple of months before she died. So she'd lapsed on her building insurance, buildings insurance, and she only owed about £2,000 on the mortgage. So the whole thing was a fiasco, but yeah, the, the house wasn't insured um, and it had to be sold as a wreck and stuff. So yeah, that was all quite traumatic that I had to deal with all of that. And yeah, and not really my kind of thing, you know, having to deal with all that type of thing and get involved with banks and solicitors and ombudsmen and all kinds of stuff yeah yes god no the legality of life because you just know that somehow down the line it's it's going to go oh by the way you've got nothing somehow yeah. it's like yes but that's not fair it's like yes but that's the law yeah. so it's horrible isn't it but you you then you do get some money and then you buy a flat is that correct that's right yeah so i ended up being able to get a little flat in finsbury park um, so yeah that was kind of and with some savings that I had from before and stuff like that as well so yeah so I was okay I had something but I was kind of by this time I was 40 so I didn't really know what I was going to do I was still getting the odd session here and there but not a load and so I was still doing paint jobs and doing the 
corporate parties doing palm and tarot, but everything was a bit kind of uncertain at that point. And so, yeah, so I ended up moving to Bristol um, where I had a cousin and an aunt and an uncle because I felt I'd be around kind of family that I got on with, even though they weren't that close. And uh, yeah, I ended up moving to Bristol and having a life there. Yes. So did you did you sort of have a call from Mike Oldfield at this stage? Who wanted oh, to before, Yeah, I was because I was on the books of a session agent and um, apparently Mike liked my photo and wanted to hear a demo. So I sent him a demo tape of some stuff I'd done, but I never heard back. So, yes. Blimey, that's that's kind of so then what's the next musical kind of combo that you're in? Um, so it was with my partner. So I'd met this guy who'd started Charlie Says with me and then we moved to Bristol and we were just going to do it for fun. It wasn't going to be serious. We weren't going to try and get anywhere. We were just going to do it for fun. And so we called it Rock In Your Pocket. It was supposed to be a comment on how you could get all the rock ever made on an MP3 player in your pocket. Um, sort of it spoke, but I've I've realised irony doesn't really work in rock. No. So, so uh, yeah, so we formed this band, Rock in Your Pocket, and we were kind of uh, it was kind of a bit punky and a bit dubby because we were in Bristol, so we were like, oh, let's have dubby samples. So our drummer had a sample pad, and um, yeah, so we did that for a bit, and people seemed to like it, and we got quite a lot of good gigs and. Um, got in with some promoters in Bristol, saw a load of old people that I'd known, as in we got to play with Sensor and Pop Will Eat itself. Um, I think we even got to play with Lydia Lunch. Um, who else? I'm trying to think. Dub Trio, who is Mike Patton's band from Peeping Tom. Right. So, yeah, we played with some, like, totally legendary people in Bristol in that band. Um, but then the Bristol scene is quite weird. It's kind of um, the band scene is quite um, kind of a weird sort of snobbery. Like there's, it's kind of very sort of noise, psych, doom, quite serious. And we got very influenced by that. So then we changed the band name to Nasty Little Lonely um, and uh, continued gigging with that. And we're kind of in the same sort of scene as Idols. Um, right. Played with them and um, yeah, did gigs. Played with Bo Ningen and bands like that. That's like oh, Evil Blizzard, Park Chimp, um, who else? Ginger Wild Hearts, Mutation. So all kind of edgy stuff, you know, edgy alt rock, noise, doom, psych, that kind of genre. Um, but uh, it was really difficult because. All the guys in that scene, well, apart from Bone Ingen, obviously, but all the guys in that scene have check shirts and beards. So it was kind of a bit of an attitude of, what are you doing playing this with your blonde hair and your eyeliner? You know, it kind of was a bit of a weird disconnect and it was very hard to get gigs. And, you know, I was 50 by then as well. It's tricky, isn't it, really? Because then you, in the book, mentioned 2016. This is because you, had you been feeling kind of um kind of depressed i don't know how to put it actually menopausal pre-menopausal yeah. this is the word isn't it really the doctor and unfortunately with so many as with so many things in my life i'm always about two years ahead of when something becomes mainstream so this was before menopause was being discussed by davina mccall loose women this morning and everyone 
you know, everyone in the world. Um, and I remember going to the doctor and saying, I don't feel right. Please help me. Could it be the menopause? There was a female doctor and she just went, oh, it happens when it happens. You'll be fine. Now, of course, now, if you go to the doctor at any age above 45 and say you're feeling weird, they don't even test you. They just give you hormone replacement therapy straight away. But I couldn't get it. And it wasn't until I was 51 and I, by luck, saw a temporary doctor who happened to be a woman in her 50s. And she was like, I know what's wrong with you. And, and she did all the tests and she gave me the HRT and everything. And but yeah, it just wasn't really understood in the same way. And by then I was teaching at a music college. And I remember going to my boss and saying, I can't cope. I need some time off or I need to reduce my hours. And they just weren't sympathetic at all. Now, of course, like a couple of years later, workplaces have to provide a room for you to sit in. They have to give you time off if you need it. And they have to kind of be sympathetic and understanding. There was none of that when I went through it. Yes, I know that's that is extraordinary. That's less than 10 years. But having, you know, at the age I am, most of the um, female friends, you know, have that conversation and just hearing what people have gone through and just thinking it's devastating and I've done a lot of research into it actually and this isn't in my book but I do talk about it in my book talks that I've been doing and that is the only living creatures on planet earth that have the menopause are humans killer whales and short-finned pilot whales no other animals have the menopause and a lot of research has been done into the whales not into the humans but into the whales and they've discovered that um uh, the male offspring of the menopausal female whales have a biological advantage if they have a surviving parent who's postmenopausal because um, successful breeding males are too big and too slow to catch their own food. It takes more calories for them to catch their own food than it does for the, from the calories they get from the food. So their postmenopausal mum will catch food for them allowing them better chances of survival and they call this the grandmother effect because it allows them to continue to pro propagate um, but we don't know why it exists in humans there appears to be no genetic advantage <laughs> no it's just absolutely zero it just it's just another thing to feel a bit fed up and sad about because it's it's like I just know people whose lives have just were like oh that's kind of dropped a bit and yeah. and the weird thing is what I've noticed is that that you think oh that's when you're younger you can drop and then come back again but sometimes now you drop and you think is that the new norm we just hit another level or this is what the next bit's going to be like it's not just like this oh you're back up you bounce up again it's really strange and um it's a kind of an odd one because obviously um you're sort of thinking actually I'll be 60 soon well you know next year and then that's that decade and whatever happens that is what's going to happen when you're in your 20s and 30s you know, it's it's such a different concept, really. It's no, it's terrible. I, I find it very difficult and very uncomfortable with it. I'm still, you know, around 16 on the inside. And then I have to deal with being this old person. You know, I'm not dealing with it very well. I refuse. Yes, <laughs> it's it's easy to um to sort of be confused. I, I find the whole thing's confusing. But then did you say that you then... Uh, got another career and went into teaching at this stage 
So when I first moved to Bristol, that was quite a funny story because I have a very good old friend that I'd know since the 90s, um, a guy called Kieran, who ended up being the drummer for The Prodigy for 10 years. Um, he'd been in my bands at various points and stuff. And uh, I didn't realise he was in Bristol when I got there. And um, I got a call on a Sunday night saying, Charlie, you're teaching tomorrow. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And it was because um, the bass tutor was Damon Mancella from Ocean Colour Scene. And he'd been at a party that Saturday night and put his arm through a plate glass window and severed a tendon in his wrist. So he couldn't play bass. So they were stuck for someone. So I was called on a Sunday night. Monday morning, I was a teacher. And I had never done it. I'd left school without A-levels. I didn't have a degree. But, you know, I'd read a lot of books and I'd had a lifetime blagging it in the music industry. So I somehow blagged it. And then I kind of took to it. So they um, they trained me and got me a PG cert. Um, so I became a qualified teacher. And I continued to do that in Bristol. And then I've continued to do that since I moved to Brighton. Blimey, that is amazing. But then during lockdown, from from that sort of the last bit of the book is that you've gone to Brighton, but then the relationship breaks up as well. So then you're the, the weirdest decade ever, isn't it, really? It's gone from bizarre to kind of weird. So where does that leave you musically now? Where Where's your next kind of chapter? Well, he was my guitarist and obviously we had, you know, several bands together and we were a very prolific writing team. So that was kind of a bit of a shock. But I had got to a point where I didn't want to keep knocking on doors. You know, I was finding it humiliating and exhausting. It's not a question of like, you know, I've played Wembley, do you know who I am? But it is a question of I'm very experienced. I'm good at what I do. It's always reliable, good quality. You know, you're, you're going to get a good show if you booked my band. But it had become very, very hard because of the prejudice against prejudice against um, and being an older woman. And ironically, yeah, again, I was sort of just ahead of the curve because now I've noticed things massively changing in the last three years in terms of positive discrimination of having women on bills, of being more kind of empathic to do with menopause issues, all that kind of thing. So I'm kind of tempted to try and get something new together. I mean, I released a single with a friend in January that was an electronic project. Um, but really, you know, where my heart is, is playing the bass, big, greedy, fat bass lines. Um, but I'm kind of reluctant to do that thing where I audition strangers. So I'm kind of like, you know, just putting the word out amongst all the old contacts that I've got. And if something turns up that's on a decent level, I'll do it. But I am not driving myself to Liverpool for 50 quid ever again. I'm not carrying my own amplifier ever again because it will break me. And I want a dressing room. So if I can have those things, I don't care about the money. I just want those things. <laughs> yes. Well, no, I can I completely three o'clock in the morning sort of dragging your amp up these stairs. It's probably you've done that, haven't you, in the middle of winter. So, yeah. Does that? So when did you when did that period come in your life where you started to ditch if you did, you know, the the. Did you ditch the tarot and the slight, you know, magic? Yeah, yeah. so I kind of, um, what actually happened was I saw a, a Darren Brown programme. We love Darren, don't we? 
Yeah. And he did a thing where he he said, I'm going to show you something now. So he had all these women in a room and he'd written them all a reading, an individual reading in an envelope and gave it to all of them. And he said, right, when I say now, you can all open your envelopes and read them, but don't show them to each other. Just read them. And they all opened them and they were like, this is amazing. No one's ever understood me like you have, Darren. And then he went, now compare. And they were all the same. And he explained that it was something called cold reading. And I was like, oh, shit, that's what I do. I didn't realize that I was cold reading people because when you do... um, tarot and palm you have a vocabulary you have kind of like a load of stock phrases that you use (coughs) and I would try to be genuine I believed in it I believed I was being genuine but if you think about it what person in the world isn't going to agree with this oh you're much more sensitive than people realize you are they think you're much tougher externally than you are on the inside everyone right or if you say to someone you know, you're being taken for granted at work. Everyone thinks that's true. Or you're actually a lot more creative than people realise you are. Everyone thinks that's true. That's cold reading. And yes. that's like diminished my faith in it. Yes. Well, the other classic one is there was a friendship or relationship you had that, you know, still hurts and you still haven't quite you know recovered from it you know all those kind of classics it's like oh yes there was a friendship that still niggle you know it's like well unless you haven't ever met anybody so it was like you know I think it was one of those programs it was Darren Brown because I loved his work and used to watch it and sort of that power of suggestion looking for patterns in complete chaos and randomness because I did an interview with a guy yesterday or the other day and we were talking about a similar thing really and and um yeah, that those kind of how how suggestive we are, you know, looking, oh, that was it. That if we if we dream about somebody and then we happen to see them three days later, we think that's amazing. But it's like, but how many people have you thought about and you didn't see? Yeah. Or you know what I mean? But it's like, oh my God, that was an amazing. I dreamed about that. I thought about that. And I thought, yeah, but all what about all the other thousands or hundreds of people that you yeah. thought about and you didn't see the next day? Yeah. And I do t- believe in it in stuff a tiny bit, as in. I still believe that if you're kind of on your path, you sometimes do get synchronicity as an indicator that you're on your path. And I do believe in tarot and the I Ching as the language of archetypes of the mass unconscious. But I just don't believe in like a tall, dark stranger will come into your life or, you know, oh, you're a Taurian. That's why you always think blah, blah, blah. You know, so I don't believe those things anymore, but I believe in it in a kind of more abstract philosophical kind of a way yes well david bowie was into young wasn't he Jungian types and archetypes so i think a lot of it is a good conversation and it's a good thing to think about but then it's even better when darren brown kind of explains some of the 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 suggestion to it and um and there's a whole stuff i can't remember his name who about yuri geller you know there's a guy who said to yuri geller i'll give you a million pound if you can prove this thing that you say you can do here now on you know without without any props and he's like you know come on a million pound you must be able to do it surely and he's like "Mm, still waiting for Yuri to come out and do it so it's like you know I'll watch you but I want to be here watching you do it and it's like 
you can't so i think you know yeah there's there's a lot of people and there's a lot of creepy old men who used to use all those things which were like oh let me read your palm and oh, disgusting yeah. <laughs> so funny. i tell people that i don't do it anymore and that i don't believe in it anymore and they're still like go on read my palm and i do and then they're like amazing amazing how do you? so it's like it still works even though they know it's not true and i don't believe in it and it's cold reading they still love it it's funny Yes, we need it. So so if you were able to whisper something to your like 16-year-old self starting out in this interesting world, is there anything in particular that you would have just said, oh, even if that person would have just ignored it anyway? Um, I think, I don't know, it's really hard because I don't really regret things because I wouldn't have had the experiences that I've had if I if I did, hadn't have gone through with them. And so many of the amazing experiences that I had were born of deep dysfunction and doing the wrong thing. So it's really hard. I think maybe I'd say you're going to need to be tough and, you know, don't think that anything's the end. There'll always be another thing and there'll always be more and it's going to be tough. But I don't think I would have told myself to do anything different because... You know, like there were times in my life where I should have just told people to get lost and I shouldn't have worked with them. But then if I had have done that, I wouldn't have had the amazing experiences that I had with them, even though it was dysfunctional. And who's to say that I would have had a better one that was functional? So, yeah, so I, I don't regret anything. I don't think I would. But I would say it's going to be tough. Hang in there. Hang in there, indeed. Did you, I mean... You were saying about doing the book, you know, the the early bit was, you know, like they have been your anecdotes, whereas re writing the last 15 years was more difficult because it's probably still processing stuff. I mean, has has it, did it, was it tricky when you hit sort of send, print, or oh, receive it, you know, knowing that a lot of the people in the book are going to go, Ugh. did that, was that kind of something that gave you a few sleepless nights? Yeah, and I did ask ask a few good friends, like, shall I do it before I press the publish button? Um, and I did check with um, the singer of Rub Ultra. I actually work with him now at the music college. And I did show him the book and I said, look, if anyone's going to sue me, it's going to be you. What do you think? And his comment on it was, I probably deserve it. I did a bunch of crazy stuff. And, of course, I used to drink a lot then, which was responsible for some poor decision making and irrational behavior and he took it all in his stride and he's lovely to me so yeah so that's cool but yeah I imagine there's probably about five other people who are pretty angry but I've changed most of them's names but it's interesting that on Amazon I've had a few five-star reviews with amazing comments I've had one one-star review with no comment and it's clearly someone in the book who's like you know really pissed off with what I wrote about them <laughs> yes but I didn't make myself the hero of the book you know I felt it was very important that I showed all my own stupidity and my own poor decision making because it wasn't it wasn't about score settling it was about just explaining what a fucked up world it is and how chaotic everything is and how no one really knows what they're doing, including me, you know, so I've put all my bad behavior in the book as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you, I mean, cause it's kind of interesting in the last three years, there's been a huge amount of books coming out 
on the subject, you know, from the 80s and 90s, especially we've had all the 60s and 70s, haven't we? Well, most of them. But but obviously there's been a lot that have been written. Have you delved into any of the, the current crop that have come out in the last 12 months? Yeah, I've got, um, what have I got? I'm looking at my shelf. I've got Debbie Howie's one and I've got uh, Brett Anderson's one and obviously I read Barry Adamson's one and the Viv Albertine. Um, yeah, so I did look at, at quite a few of them. I was yeah. just kind of, it was Mickey from um, from Lush. I just wondered if you'd read her book, actually. I haven't because um, I'm very good friends with someone who's very good friends with Emma. And so <laughs> I sort of feel a conflict of loyalty. I don't want to read it and go, oh, it's really good because then I'm betraying my friend and Emma so I don't know I'm like staying out of that one <laughs> yes it's a very it's a it's a whole gig isn't it that one that's just she been didn't a... do, she didn't do what I did I I got permission from the main person I was slagging off and she didn't do that and I've heard that there might be inaccuracies but I don't know I don't know the story so I don't know I don't want to get involved but yeah no. good one there's some bad feeling there that's all I know yeah, well, I, it's kind of interesting that of all the bands that I've ever interviewed, um, the Lush one is the most tricky one that I've done. And and it was kind of a difficult because Phil, you know, there was issues with the way the band, because they got back together and then they have this big bust up in America and Phil walks off in the last kind of few gigs. So there's a lot of issues. So I was really curious how how Phil was going to appear in the book because it's like, my God, you know, you've all been in court recently, not that long ago, and now you've written a book about all this. And I'm slightly amazed. And I I kind of think they must be fuming, absolutely fuming about that book. I tried not to do that. I tried to only say bad things about people. And actually, I toned a lot of it down. And I did change a lot of people's names. Um, out of courtesy I didn't have to because legally I got legal advice legally you don't have to change people's names if you've got proof of what happened and I did have but I changed some famous people's names out of courtesy because I didn't want it to be a kiss and tell and I changed some other people's names because of I didn't want to kind of you know belittle their experience or make allegations of illegal behavior or things like that. So, but there were certain people I couldn't really change their name. I couldn't change anyone's name from Rub Ultra because it's <laughs> a public record. You can find it. Yes. But I did check with the singer and he was okay about it. So, yeah. I mean, uh, and that is important. And also, that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Charlie Beddows for giving me the time for that interview. Her book, which is out and available, Overdriven, The True Story of a Girl with a Dirty Bass Sound and More Ambition Than Sense, is available and is absolutely fantastic. So do check it out and buy a copy. Um, this is the C86 show, David Eastall. Yes, it is. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.